Today, I'm excited to welcome true crime writer Kathy Pickens to the podcast. Among other things, she's well-versed in the area of missing people in the Carolinas, so I felt like she'd be a natural fit for the podcast. Before we get started, a word about our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by WOW Women on Writing. By day, I work as a journalist and magazine editor, but I also enjoy creative writing and entering writing contests. If you like writing creative nonfiction, you should check out the contests over at WOW Women on Writing. The deadline for the latest contest is October 31st, so you have plenty of time to work on your entry. This specific contest will have 20 winners and more than $1,350 in cash prizes. First place wins $500. You can also purchase a critique to get more feedback on your writing. Learn more at wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the contest tab. True crime writer Kathy Pickens started her writing life as a mystery novelist. The first of five mysteries in the Southern Fried series won St. Martin's Award for Best New Traditional Mystery. She's always loved research into the legal and forensics details for her novels and has recently turned her passion for real crime stories into a series for History Press, starting with Charlotte True Crime Stories. On September 28th, True Crime Stories of Eastern North Carolina will be released. She is a frequent mystery convention panelist, speaking on topics ranging from Southern mysteries to classic true crime stories to the use of poisons. At various times and under various aliases, she's been a trial attorney specializing in complex civil litigation, a university provost, a business school professor at Queen's University of Charlotte, a church organist and choir director, and a ballroom and clog dance coach. She has served as National President of Sisters in Crime and on the National Board of Mystery Writers of America. Currently, Kathy offers workshops on developing the creative process, coaches and teaches new writers through Charlotte Lit, and works with former inmates on starting their own businesses and writing their own stories. Please join me in welcoming Kathy Pickens to the podcast. There are a number of missing persons cases right here in the Carolinas, and some have received more media attention than others. These are the stories that tug at our heartstrings, make us pray it never happens to anyone in our families, and wonder if there is still any way to find closure for these missing persons and their loved ones. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Renee. Thank you for the invitation. So excited to have you on the podcast. Um, I guess we'll just jump right in with the first question, which is, you began your career as an attorney, and I'm curious how you decided to make the switch from law to writing. (laughs) Well, at the age of 11, as an avid fan of Nancy Drew, I announced to my mom that I was going to be a mystery writer. And she said, that'll be great, but you really need to find a way to support yourself. So like John Grisham and lots of other people, I became one of those writers who went to law school, not the other way around. And there's lots of us, I think, um, because that's a world of words too. And we felt a lot more comfortable there than maybe engineering school or something like that. So That makes sense. I wanted to talk uh, for a few minutes about your Southern Fried Mystery series. I understand the first book in the series 
Southern Fried got published as the result of entering a contest? Yes, um, St. Martin's, uh, which is part of a huge conglomerate, international conglomerate, one of the big New York publishing houses, um, sponsored a contest for best new mysteries. And, and winning that was like getting struck by light, frankly. Um, and, and it was great fun. It was a terrific boost. My editor was this delightful woman in her 80s who used to catch the train in from White Plains every day <laughs> and then take the bus down to the Flatiron Building. So this is not a woman who you could say, oh, I didn't get my work done. You know, that's, that just wasn't it. And she was really an icon in Mystery Potion, so I felt so fortunate. Uh, and did five books in that series and decided I was going to embark on other adventures. But that was terrific fun. Yeah, I'm going to read those now. I've got those on my list. I can't wait. They are, they are pure, just silly fun. Uh, and sort of my love story to my hometown where I grew up, um, tucked up in the Southern Appalachian Mountains. Yes, there are mountains in South Carolina. Some people don't know that. So uh, just, just intended to be fun. Well, you know, I'm going to have to ask, I know they're fiction books, but were any parts of them inspired by real life occurrences? Yes. Every book has the kernel of either a case or a situation um, that sparked me. For instance, the first book has a car submerged in the water over a long period of time and without going into, you know, a whole lot of storytelling there. Um, there were several cases like that where somebody just disappeared and nobody knew where they were for 20 years or more. And then they're found in this body of water. So that just always intrigued me. But then I had people ask me, well, do you, you know, do you kill off people that you don't like? And you certainly don't want to claim that you actually did damage to a real person. But I didn't kill off anybody I didn't like. Instead, I made them the murderers. Um, that just seemed more fitting to me. Um, so, yeah, yeah. There's always something true in there. So how did you segue from the fiction writing to writing true crime? Yeah, that, that, was, that was an interesting twist. I was teaching in the McCall School of Business, um, and I, I taught law and ethics, and then started teaching a creativity class, how to develop your creative process, which was this happy collision of both sides of my life. Um, with um, a very you know, sort of left brain law business background and then this creative side. So it was terrific. So I started working on that book, which is really why I walked away from any more books at St. Martin's. They were willing, but I, it was just probably, people told me I was stupid, but it was time for me to do something new. But as I left Queens a few years later, I began teaching entrepreneurship and then later creative writing to the guys in the Mecklenburg County Jail and some women, we worked with some women too. And um, I, I was struck all of a sudden with, this, with the reality that I had seen mysteries as puzzles. Agatha Christie and Nancy Drew and there were these interesting intellectual puzzles that you solved. And all of a sudden I came face to face with the fact that crime has other dimensions it's not all puzzle solving. And I always tell the story of a young man who's become a friend of mine now. We correspond, he's, he's in jail, but um, he says, well, what do you write? Why, why don't you send me something, that, one of your books? And I said, well, I don't think you'll like it. They're like Agatha Christie. And he goes, who's Agatha Christie? 
I'm like, sword to my heart. Um, But then I realized it's just a different, you know, sort of background, a different sort of upbringing and different age. I mean, he's in his 20s. And um, I, then I started hearing these stories, and there's, they're multi-sided. They're, his victim's family is heartbroken. His family's heartbroken. His children are heartbroken. He's heartbroken. And there's a reality and a humanity there that just intrigued me as a storyteller. But I had always read um, true crime. From the first time I started writing fiction, I began reading true crime because I wanted to get the details right. I'm just rabid about that. So technical forensics books, chemistry books, anthropology books, criminal procedure books, read all that. So this, in the same way, I began to um, explore these stories in more detail, these real stories in more detail. And to me, it's just fascinating. Oh, I completely understand. You don't have to explain it to me. <laughs> no proselytizing necessary here. Huh? <laughs> so how did you go about doing the research for Charlotte true crime stories and true crime stories of Eastern North Carolina? Curious about you your know, I, I can only confess this to the closest of my friends, but I just walked into my study and opened the drawer of my filing cabinet because I've been one of those, you know, newspaper clippers. My husband's a newspaper addict, so even today, um, we still subscribe to newspapers. And um, I, I would clip things, things would speak to me, and I would throw them in there. And initially, they were for writing fiction, but then I started to realize, well, wait a minute, you know, um, there's the, the one thing, the one image that comes to mind is uh, Midge Benfield was a young woman, she was a teenager, and she was killed at the outlaw um, motorcycle gang headquarters here in Charlotte. And I had not moved to Charlotte when that happened, but I was here for the anniversary articles that appeared on the front page, and here's her smiling um, school picture in the Charlotte Observer, usually on the front page in the early years, because the, the murders were unsolved at the time. And that, that was in there, that was in this bunch of newspaper clippings. And as I, as I was going through, I said, you know, this, I've got stuff here. So I queried History Press, I had written a book for them back in, I think, 2009 on Charleston. It was funny, it was related to one of my mysteries, which was set in Charleston. And it was a walking tour, more ghosty stuff and quirky history, but also, I can't help it, some crime stories. And um, so I approached them and they were all for it. So we were off and running. Um, But most of the the research was there, you know, on my bookshelves and in my filing cabinets. and then the wonderful uh, Spangler Room at the Mecklenburg County Library, um, where they have clipping files. They call them vertical files, but oh my goodness, somebody has carefully clipped all these crime stories and written the date and the page number on the margin in very precise handwriting. And I was just in hog heaven. Wow, that's amazing that somebody uh, is. Oh, and that they yeah, because because as you and I've talked, um, the microfilm thing and the you know needing Dramamine and the trash can nearby is just not my thing. So <laughs> I was very very grateful for actual paper. <laughs> yeah, I've tried to explain to my kids about those machines, and they just stare at me like I have a third head. They don't. They're not sure what that's about. 
<laughs> I guess. Well, see, that's the benefit of not having children is I can I can continue to assume that I have not gotten really old somewhere in the process. <laughs> I don't have anyone telling me that constantly. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a fun feeling, let me yeah, tell you. Yeah, absolutely. What were some things, I know this is kind of a broad general question, but what were some things that surprised you while doing the research for both of these true crime books? Um, you know, for, in some cases, it was digging back and realizing how much the past is like the present. That sounds really odd, but here's a, you know, a murder case in the 1920s, almost 100 years ago. And while some things have changed, juries are not all male anymore. Um, but it is unusual for a woman to commit murder. Um, and juries still have a bit of trouble convicting the woman of a really horrible sentence if they like her. <laughs> Men don't seem to get the same break. So I, I'm, I'm kind of interested, even over 90 or 100 years, we still have some of those. Um, and I think, I think it's, I don't think it's exclusively Southern, but I think it has a strong history in this sort of Southern chivalry thing in a good way. Um, that, that we can't possibly conceive <laughs> that some little woman could, you know, accidentally almost cut her husband's head off. But um, that's one of my favorite stories in there it was Razor Girl. Um, I've talked about her a lot. I think too, um, also back in the twenties, um, a fraud case that a guy in Concord did things that you just can't believe. He defrauded the lady who owned the Hope Diamond by telling her that if she would give him some money, they could rescue the Lindbergh baby. And this was a huge scandal. And he was also involved in some guys who, and this was probably a legitimate business thing. They just got ahead of themselves. Their, their sales techniques were better than their production techniques. But it was the Glass Casket Company. Wow. Just muse on that a little bit. <laughs> And I'm like, well, no, that's an interesting business proposition. Um, he's actually had this this character, Gaston Means, has actually had a, a, a piece um, on a television series recently. So it's not that he's unknown. He's just not very well known in Charlotte. So to, to unearth these stories that have helped define Charlotte uh, are important to me because I think crime stories define a place in certain ways, maybe, maybe, and not necessarily all bad ways. Sometimes we learn from our past. Uh, sometimes it's interesting to see how the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, and sometimes we find ourselves growing and improving and learning things about each other that I think are helpful. But all of these are stories about real people in real lives. And to me, that's been both not, not so much a surprise, but nice to see in its uh, realization to see it come together. That's a, that's a very interesting observation. I wouldn't have thought about that, but that, that makes a lot of sense. What can readers expect from the latest book, True Crime Stories of Eastern North Carolina? Um, I, to tell you the truth, I'm a South Carolina girl. I grew up in the hill country in South Carolina. And um, 
have lived in Charlotte now for 35 years or so, not certainly not a native. I've never, you know, I don't think you just move into a place and all of a sudden you're a part of it. But I've been here a long time. I knew nothing really about the Outer Banks and most of Eastern North Carolina. So that was just fascinating to me. It's like the lower part of the state of South Carolina. I grew up in the upstate and my sisters have all married flatlanders, we call them. And it is just a completely different culture. And the music is different, the food is different, the folkways are different, it's just fascinating. And so Eastern North Carolina and the lower part of the state of South Carolina are very similar, just like the mountainous areas and Piedmont areas of the two states are the same. So they just cut the states apart in the wrong way as it turned out. Um, but what you get there, um, there there's an interesting, for me, Native American story, an outlaw band, they call them, uh, in the Civil War era. Um, and then you have stories that probably could only happen in a rural swampy area, like a little missing boy um, that, that I had not heard the case before, but a lawyer has dug out and written about the senator's son. Charles Oldham wrote the book and he is a meticulous researcher. He went through legal papers that are handwritten from this era of this little boy that just one day goes missing. And the so the stories, while they're very different from what you would find in an urban area like Charlotte or even a suburban, a small town area, there's also um, a lot of similarities. Um, for me, um, North Carolina fascinates me because I have not found a state, another state with as many convicted, female serial poisoners as North Carolina. Now that, I don't know why the Chamber of Commerce doesn't make more use of that um, as, a, as a drawing card. Um, but uh, so, so Eastern North Carolina, Charlotte itself doesn't have any, but Eastern North Carolina had its, uh, had its share of some really scary women. <laughs> so, and, and they're scattered throughout North Carolina, which I find fascinating. I believe there may be one, isn't there one in D the Denver area right now that they're trying to convict? There, yes, there is. I think that's the eye drop case. Yeah, the, yeah, the poison with eye drops case. Yeah. But then yeah. they started looking back and I think she had a, a previous spouse that had also More, passed yeah. away. So they're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing that recently. Yeah. But you're right. I was thinking about that when you were talking about it earlier about Marie Hilly. Yeah. And yeah. Well, you have, Blanche, you have Blanche Taylor Moore, Velma Barfield. A lot of people don't know Nanny Doss because she was caught and, and incarcerated in another state, but she was here in North Carolina too. She was called a giggling grandma. And more recently, you had Ann Miller um, in Raleigh. Who, who and, and what fascinates me is they use arsenic. It's one of the most traceable of poisons, but hospitals still miss it because you're not expecting it you know and um you know <laughs> my husband will be watching one of these crime shows on tv and and he'll look at me and he says he says tingling in the extremities that's arsenic is <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> people people ask him if he's if he's ever worried but no he's not he teases about it but but it's fascinating to me because uh, the, you know it's happened in other states and and yet um and, and, and people are caught, but poison is a very sneaky crime. It's typically a female crime, although 
book I'm working on now, there's a guy who was convicted of it. Um, but to me, that's just a very Southern um, sort of genteel sort of particularly cruel, horrible way to kill somebody, but we see it as, you know, somehow removed and distant. So. Right. It is. It is very, most of the made for TV movies that you see about these um, crimes occur in the South. Yeah. Some sort of really beautiful black widow involved in it. And it's all based on real cases. That's the. Absolutely. Well, well, one in Eastern North Carolina, the woman actually came from Dallas. And I was fascinated by the crime because my husband's from Oklahoma and she killed one of his kids in his hometown and has, you know, not been tried for that, but has been suspected of that. So I shouldn't say she killed him, but it's, it's interesting. Not only do we have our homegrowns, we have some that come in from other places <laughs> to visit here. We um, do. And, yeah. So it, it's yeah. Yeah. Okay. So because this podcast is called Missing in the Carolinas, I have to ask, what do you think are some of the most interesting missing persons cases in North and South Carolina? Um, you know, that list is long. Um, we, you know, we had talked about that. And, and in Charlotte, I think for me, it's the Asia degree case. Um, you watch her age progress, photos come out in the news. She's the little girl who just disappeared in the night. She was seen walking down the road in a rural area and just gone. They found her book bag later and everything. Her parents have, and, and of course the police checked them out one side and down the other. This case has really been worked hard for a long period of time. The family has stayed so involved in making sure the case stays in front of people. And of course people have been found um, sometimes years later, um, but that there wasn't the sort of family strife or anything that, that anybody knew about there. Um, and why would she just walk out of her house in the middle of the night and uh, disappear? Also, didn't she disappear like when it was storming really badly or something? It was not, it was not good weather. Yeah, it was not good weather. And she wasn't, yeah. And, and had her backpack and school pencils and, you know, it just such a lovely little girl. So it sort of always, you know, felt like, she was one of those little girls that belonged to all of us and we wished we could find her. And, but of course, she's certainly not the only one. Um, I was in Columbia in school when a, a young woman named Dale Dinwiddie disappeared, college student. Again, the posters all over town and people wondering what had happened. Um, you know, I, I've become fascinated with this. Um, there was a book that came out for those of your listeners who are interested in this, The Skeleton Crew by Deborah Halber, H-A-L-B-E-R, talks about uh, a fellow named Thomas, who's just a regular kind of guy, in an interesting way, got involved in trying to identify a body found beside the road. And that became a whole career for him. He worked with a lot of people. One is Dr. Emily Craig, who was uh, Kentucky State for, or Commonwealth Forensic Anthropologist for a number of years. I've met her and I've met Todd, they're fascinating people, and they've um, really pulled together a network called NAMUS, N-A-M-U-S, NAMUS. And so when we talk about missing people, the corollary is unidentified bodies. And how do you put, you know, put some closure, give some closure to families by bringing those together? 
And one of the cases that I knew about in South Carolina that they have on their site are two young people, uh, male and female, found at the side of an interstate in South Carolina and no idea who they are and um, or how, where they came from, how they ended up there. They look, you know, pretty well cared for, you know, you kind of look, see if somebody's in good health or not. And so you think of the questions of, of those cases. And again, like I mentioned, the, the senator's son, anytime a little kid um, is missing, um, then, and, and the family doesn't know, sometimes forever, they don't know. Um, those are really hard, hard cases. The corollary again is those people that we can't find their names and put them together. Yeah, I've always been, um impressed by the work of the Doe Network too. And that was kind of fed, I think they worked together. They, because those were grassroots organizations starting out, um, they've had kind of a mixed past, but the Doe Network is part of what they discuss in the skeleton crew and kind of how they fit together. Um, and NamUs has some now federal sort of, I don't know if it's funding or what, and is housed interestingly at North Texas University, I think although they're scattered all over the place. Um, but it, you know, if you're, you know, for the folks interested in missing persons, that, that book is a good introduction. It's been out for a little while now, but a good introduction if they don't already know some of the resources and some of the people working on these things. Oh, that's interesting. I'll have to check that one out. Uh, when you were talking earlier about the newspaper clippings, I still somewhere in my files have the first clipping where I learned about the Doe Network. Yeah, the tent girl story. They were talking about how they had identified her. In well, that was Todd Matthews. That's the guy who wrote the skeleton. Yeah, so that so it's like this whole sort of weird interconnected network family, you know, that um, that does this. So yeah, the tent girl. His father had found that the body, and he said about you know identified her. So yeah, it's an yeah. incredible case. It really is very interesting. Um, what do you think the most difficult part of writing true crime is? Um, I am very aware of the fact that everything I write about involves somebody's pain. And I try to be respectful of that. And people say, well, why would you do that? And I think these stories are important. These were people's lives um, and both, frankly, both the killer and the victim and the investigators and their family and the community were all involved in that story. And I don't know that it's necessarily helpful to brush those kinds of things under the rug and pretend they didn't happen, but I do want to treat them respectfully and understand as best I can the multiple points of view. Um, and people say, well, why are people interested in true crime? And I think there's a lot of reasons. One is that puzzle solving thing that attracts people to fictional mystery stories. There's, there's part of that. But the demographic for these sorts of stories is largely female. And I have a friend who, who he calls it gore porn. I said, well, thank you. I love you, but no, thank you. <laughs> but, but it's more than that. It's not just this sort of voyeuristic thing. I, I don't think that draws most of us to it. It's a sense of, can I help solve this? Can I be the detective? Can I put these pieces together? That's part of it. 
I think another part of it is, can I protect myself and people I love from something happening? So I think that particularly women realize that the world is not always a safe place and we don't want to be victims or weak or ineffective in that. We want to be Wonder Woman, okay? And we want to, you know, be able to understand what's going on, be able to, you know, do that. But I also think that we are keepers of stories and we realize that if, you know, we, if we don't preserve them, we've lost something. It was interesting though, as I began writing this, I began working with guys who were in jail and in prison. I was talking about, I was talking about my young friend in prison and a letter or something. And this woman who's a very, I, I adore her. She's a, she's a writer, she's a good friend of mine now, but she leaned over to me and she put her hand on mine. And she said, my grandson is in prison. And I've never really been able to tell anyone about that. And that, that was just such a thunderbolt for me because whether you're the victim or you're the family of the, of the perpetrator, those were loved ones and you care about them. And so for me, I wanna always remember the multiplicity of people who are gathered around this story, um, but also to, to let people know, if you move to Charlotte, for instance, or you vacation in the Outer Banks or Eastern North Carolina, um, know something about the place, know something about its history besides just when the wars were and, you know, when somebody built a building. Okay. There's, there's more to it than that. Well, there's a lot more to it. I actually uh, learned a few things when I was reading True Crime Stories of Charlotte that I had. Oh, okay. <laughs> I love to hear that. that I, so I was like, wow. <laughs> Oh, I love to hear that. Well, and you know, even if you even if you grew up here, you may have heard about a story, but I hope there's some details in there that you didn't know. And for me, the fascinating thing to find too is it's like crocheting, you grab the thread and pull it through the loop, that we've learned some things about forensics as we've gone along, for instance, or um, our society and the idea of social justice has changed over time, or our techniques of investigation have changed. So we've built in safeguards. And, or we've, you know, commemorated, you know, something people drive by somewhere and don't know why it has that name. And, um, you know, th that story is important. So um, I'm, I love it when somebody says, oh, I've lived here all my life. You know, the other thing is somebody say, oh, I, my sister lived right down the street from the Outlaws Motorcycle Gang Clubhouse. <laughs> I love that. What's <laughs> You're mentioning that case. Wasn't that one that was solved recently? It was. And you know, and I write about in the book, the fascinating thing to me is in my files was a tiny little article, maybe a column each big, where they mentioned that the Charlotte police had gone and, and extradited somebody, I believe it was from California, back here on a suspected motorcycle theft charge. They knew back then who did it. <laughs> they just, but it was it was decades later. Both the guys who were involved um, were dead by that time, but um, they did finally identify for sure who had done it. And it wasn't a rival gang; they were just kind of wannabes, and you know, kind of knew the clubhouse well enough to get inside and when to get there and wreak some havoc. And um, and yeah, most people probably wouldn't have noticed except for that little school picture of Midget Benfield um, in the anniversary articles and this young girl whose mama wanted her to come home. 
Yeah. And she got mixed up in this loss. So yeah, but that was one that was solved, and those are those are always much more satisfying for those of us who who, uh, who like to bring it full circle. Yeah, I think also, and, and this may not be the right case, but I used to be a huge fan of that TV show Cold Case, the uh-huh. fictionalized one. Yeah, on CBS for a long time, and they now that I have studied more true crime, I remember certain episodes that must have been inspired by real cases. And there was one about a motorcycle gang and a young teenage girl went missing after starting, she was dating one of the uh, members. Yeah. I wonder if they had, um, you know, I, I, well, because there was one, there was another one in Florida because I knew the guy who was later convicted of that. It's a horrible, hideous thing. But yeah, those TV shows, a lot of them did borrow, you know, from Law and Order did a lot of real, um, real cases as the basis for their fiction. So yeah. Yeah. But North Carolina, Charlotte, Charlotte was a huge motorcycle gang headquarters back in the 70s. And um, then I'm finding out that, you know, it was, you know, Raleigh, Durham and that on into the mountains. This was just a great place for <laughs> some really bad guys to show up. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. It's interesting. All right, Kathy, I have one final question to ask you. Uh, what are you currently working on? The, I am just, I'm in the middle of a book, a, another book for History Press on the true crime stories of the Triangle, uh, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill. So I draw a circle around that. So there's some small town um, things as well. One thing I didn't know about that area is, and I had to look to make sure, it's the nation's largest prison break. It's in a little prison that's no longer used uh, north of Raleigh, and it was fascinating. It was, completely nobody got hurt but almost everybody walked out <laughs> oh my goodness what year was that this oh my gosh now you asked me that um and I'm gonna I, I the date's not gonna come to my head um but it was just fascinating the jail the last time I checked is for sale so it, you know, <laughs> apparently full of asbestos though so that could be a problem <laughs> so, I, I would not have known about that I, I had I had no idea, but it was fascinating. And the news coverage, I love the news coverage back in the day because the observer to the to the um the motorcycle slaughter funeral, they um of the two leaders of, of the gang, that's a different case than what we were talking about earlier. They sent every reporter and photographer I think that I'd ever heard of that worked for the observer to cover that funeral. The, the, they're buried in Mint Hill. Um, South Carolina and I mean North Carolina and um, the same with the same with this prison break every reporter that I ever heard of was covered in this prison break story it was local report it was just fascinating and they had some really great writers and great photographers I mean still do but just had a lot of them and so the coverage is something we wouldn't see now in print you know in the same way so I, I feel sad about that loss of newspapers are sort of a, a source um, because I think they checked things carefully and you know, I'm a, right you and I, you and I both are a sticker about that there's so many like errors that get 
the, the stories, even, um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but if you read something online that's um, a, a, an article from a TV station, and then it'll have an update, if you go yeah. through it, the original story is at the top and the update is at the bottom and it yeah. doesn't make any sense. You're reading right. it, I thought there was an update. Where's the update? No, what, yeah, what, yeah, what happened where? And there's a WRAL I found out of Raleigh just does some great print coverage. The TV station does great, great print coverage, but we've really lost something where we don't have reporters filing cases and going in depth and, and that, you know, we still have some, we just don't have enough. And um, there's so many other ways to get stories, but like you and I are both sticklers for getting it right as best we possibly can. And um, that, that's, that's harder, I think, <laughs> when the original source material didn't work as hard to get it right, so. Exactly, I think, yeah. um, I think, I don't know that there are any reporters anymore that specifically are on a crime beat. I mean, they are probably spread thin amongst government, crime, yeah, they do. They do a lot of different. Things. I will say, I, I know Michael Gordon. I've met him. We did a program together. He's with the Charlotte Observer, and he does the court beat. Mm -hmm. um, he had a front page article today about Ronnie Long um, being out of prison finally after I think it's forty seven years of rather kind of suspicious sounding rape conviction in Concord. And so Michael has done. He does a great job with storytelling. He he is a storyteller. Um, and I love the work that he's done um, in covering those court cases. Even if he's an Alabama fan and I'm a Clemson fan, we we still found some common ground. So yeah, those southern rivalries. I yeah. See. <laughs> well, Kathy, I think that's all the questions I had for you today. Um, I have so enjoyed this. I have too, and I enjoy your podcast. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with true crime writer Kathy Pickens. You can learn more about her at her website, kathypickens.com. That's Kathy with a C. And don't forget to check out her new book, True Crime Stories of Eastern North Carolina, available on September 28th. This brings us to the conclusion of episode 13. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're also now on Instagram and Facebook, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. If you want to visit my blog and read more about true crime cases from all over the country, including the ones featured here, visit missinginthecarolinas.com. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have to support writers at wow-womenonwriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Mia Robertson.